Chapter 8 Hell What is the world, O soldiers? It is I, I this incessant snow, this northern sky. Soldiers, this solitude through which we go is I. Walter de la Mer, Napoleon Richard loves Richard, that is, I am I. Shakespeare In an earlier chapter, it was admitted that the pain which alone could rouse the bad man to a knowledge that all was not well might also lead to a final and unrepented rebellion. And it has been admitted throughout that man has free will, and that all gifts to him are therefore two-edged. From these premises, it follows directly that the divine labor to redeem the world cannot be certain of succeeding as regards every individual soul. Some will not be redeemed. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and, specially, of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself, though many can help him to make it, and he may refuse. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say, without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say, with their will, my reason replies, how if they will not give in? Our Lord's utterances about hell, like all of his sayings, are addressed to the conscience and the will, not to our intellectual curiosity. When they have roused us into action by convincing us of a terrible possibility, they have done, probably, all they were intended to do. And if all the world were convinced Christians, it would be unnecessary to say a word more on the subject. As things are, however, this doctrine is one of the chief grounds on which Christianity is attacked as barbarous, and the goodness of God impugned. We are told that it is a detestable doctrine, and indeed I too detest it from the bottom of my heart, and are reminded of the tragedies in human life which have come from believing it. Of the other tragedies which come from not believing it, we are told less. For these reasons, and these alone, it becomes necessary to discuss the matter. The problem is not simply that of a god who consigns some of his creatures to final ruin. That would be the problem if we were Mohammedans. Christianity, true as always to the complexity of the real, presents us with something naughtier and more ambiguous, a God so full of mercy that he becomes man and dies by torture to avert that final ruin from his creatures, and who yet, where that heroic remedy fails, seems unwilling or even unable to arrest the ruin by an act of mere power. I said glibly a moment ago that I would pay any price to remove this doctrine. I lied. I could not pay one thousandth part of the price that God has already paid to remove the fact. And here is the real problem. So much mercy, yet still there is hell. I am not going to try to prove the doctrine tolerable. Let us make no mistake, it is not tolerable. But I think the doctrine can be shown to be moral by a critique of the objections ordinarily made or felt against it. First, there is an objection in many minds to the idea of retributive punishment as such. This has been partly dealt with in a previous chapter. It was there maintained that all punishment became unjust if the ideas of ill-desert and retribution were removed from it, and a core of righteousness was discovered within the vindictive passion itself, in the demand that the evil man must not be left perfectly satisfied with his own evil, that it must be made to appear to him what it rightly appears to others, evil. I said that pain plants the flag of truth within a rebel fortress. We were then discussing pain which still might lead to repentance. How if it does not? If no further conquest than the planting of the flag ever takes place? Let us try to be honest with ourselves. 
Picture to yourself a man who has risen to wealth or power by a continued course of treachery and cruelty, by exploiting for purely selfish ends the noble motions of his victims, laughing the while at their simplicity, who, having thus attained success, uses it for the gratification of lust and hatred and finally parts with the last rag of honor among thieves by betraying his own accomplices and jeering at their last moments of bewildered disillusionment. Suppose further that he does all this not, as we like to imagine, tormented by remorse or even misgiving, but eating like a schoolboy and sleeping like a healthy infant, a jolly, ruddy-cheeked man without a care in the world, unshakably confident to the very end that he alone has found the answer to the riddle of life, that God and man are fools whom he has got the better of, that his way of life is utterly successful, satisfactory, unassailable. We must be careful at this point. The least indulgence of the passion for revenge is very deadly sin. Christian charity counsels us to make every effort for the conversion of such a man, to prefer his conversion at the peril of our own lives, perhaps of our own souls, to his punishment, to prefer it infinitely. But that is not the question. Supposing he will not be converted, what destiny in the eternal world can you regard as proper for him? Can you really desire that such a man, remaining what he is, and he must be able to do that if he has free will, should be confirmed forever in his present happiness, should continue for all eternity to be perfectly convinced that the laugh is on his side? And if you cannot regard this as tolerable, is it only your wickedness, only spite, that prevents you from doing so? Or do you find that conflict between justice and mercy, which has sometimes seemed to you such an outmoded piece of theology, now actually at work in your own mind, and feeling very much as if it came to you from above, not from below? You are moved not by a desire for the wretched creature's pain as such, but by a truly ethical demand that, sooner or later, the right should be asserted, the flag planted in this horribly rebellious soul, even if no fuller and better conquest is to follow. In a sense, it is better for the creature itself, even if it never becomes good, that it should know itself a failure, a mistake. Even mercy can hardly wish to such a man his eternal, contented continuance in such a ghastly illusion. Thomas Aquinas said of suffering, as Aristotle had said of shame, that it was a thing not good in itself, but a thing which might have a certain goodness in particular circumstances. That is to say, if evil is present, pain at recognition of the evil, being a kind of knowledge, is relatively good. For the alternative is that the soul should be ignorant of the evil, or ignorant that the evil is contrary to its nature, either of which, says the philosopher, is manifestly bad, and I think, though we tremble, we agree. The demand that God should forgive such a man while he remains what he is, is based on a confusion between condoning and forgiving. To condone an evil is simply to ignore it, to treat it as if it were good. But forgiveness needs to be accepted, as well as offered, if it is to be complete, and a man who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. I have begun with the conception of hell as a positive retributive punishment inflicted by God because that is the form in which the doctrine is most repellent, and I wish to tackle the strongest objection. But of course, though our Lord often speaks of hell as a sentence inflicted by a tribunal, he also says elsewhere that the judgment consists in the very fact that men prefer darkness to light, and that not he, but his word, judges men. John chapter 3, verse 19. We are therefore at liberty, since the two conceptions in the long run mean the same thing, to think of this bad man's perdition not as a sentence imposed on him, but as the mere fact of being what he is. The characteristic of lost souls is their rejection of everything that is not simply themselves. Our imaginary egoist has tried to turn everything he meets into a province or appendage of the self. The taste for the other, that is, the very capacity for enjoying good, is quenched in him except insofar as his body still draws him into some rudimentary contact with an outer world. Death removes this last contact. He has his wish to live wholly in the self, and to make the best of what he finds there. And what he finds there is hell. Another objection turns on the apparent disproportion between eternal damnation and transitory sin. 
And if we think of eternity as a mere prolongation of time, it is disproportionate. But many would reject this idea of eternity. If we think of time as a line, which is a good image because the parts of time are successive and no two of them can coexist, that is, there is no width in time, only length, we probably ought to think of eternity as a plane or even a solid. Thus the whole reality of a human being would be represented by a solid figure. That solid would be mainly the work of God, acting through grace and nature, but human free will would have contributed the baseline, which we call earthly life. And if you draw your baseline askew, the whole solid will be in the wrong place. The fact that life is short, or, in the symbol, that we contribute only one little line to the whole complex figure, might be regarded as a divine mercy. For if even the drawing of that little line, left to our free will, is sometimes so badly done as to spoil the whole, how much worse a mess might we have made of the figure if more had been entrusted to us? A simpler form of the same objection consists in saying that death ought not to be final, that there ought to be a second chance. I believe that if a million chances were likely to do good, they would be given. But a master often knows, when boys and parents do not, that it is really useless to send a boy in for a certain examination again. Finality must come sometime, and it does not require a very robust faith to believe that omniscience knows when. A third objection turns on the frightful intensity of the pains of hell, as suggested by medieval art, and indeed by certain passages in scripture. Von Hugel here warns us not to confuse the doctrine itself with the imagery by which it may be conveyed. Our Lord speaks of hell under three symbols. First, that of punishment, everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 46. Second, that of destruction, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28. And thirdly, that of privation, exclusion, or banishment into the darkness outside, as in the parables of the man without a wedding garment or of the wise and foolish virgins. The prevalent image of fire is significant because it combines the ideas of torment and destruction. Now it is quite certain that all these expressions are intended to suggest something unspeakably horrible, and any interpretation which does not face that fact is, I am afraid, out of court from the beginning. But it is not necessary to concentrate on the images of torture to the exclusion of those suggesting destruction and privation. What can that be whereof all three images are equally proper symbols? Destruction, we should naturally assume, means the unmaking or cessation of the destroyed. And people often talk as if the annihilation of a soul were intrinsically possible. In all our experience, however, the destruction of one thing means the emergence of something else. Burn a log and you have gases, heat, and ash. To have been a log means now being those three things. If soul can be destroyed, must there not be a state of having been a human soul? And is not that perhaps the state which is equally well described as torment, destruction, and privation? You will remember that in the parable, the saved go to a place prepared for them, while the damned go to a place never made for men at all, Matthew 25:34. To enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. What is cast, or cast itself, into hell is not a man, it is remains. To be a complete man means to have the passions obedient to the will and the will offered to God. To have been a man, to be an ex-man or damned ghost, would presumably mean to consist of a will utterly centered in itself and passions utterly uncontrolled by the will. It is, of course, impossible to imagine what the consciousness of such a creature, already a loose congeries of mutual antagonistic sins rather than a sinner, would be like. There may be a truth in the saying that hell is hell, not from its own point of view, but from the heavenly point of view. I do not think this belies the severity of our Lord's words. It is only to the damned that their fate could ever seem less than unendurable. And it must be admitted that, as in these last chapters we think of eternity, the categories of pain and pleasure which have engaged us so long begin to recede as vaster good and evil looms in sight. Neither pain nor pleasure, as such, has the last word. Even if it were possible that the experience, 
if it can be called experience, of the lost, contain no pain and much pleasure, still that black pleasure would be such as to send any soul, not already damned, flying to its prayers in nightmare terror. Even if there were pains in heaven, all who understand would desire them. A fourth objection is that no charitable man could himself be blessed in heaven while he knew that even one human soul was still in hell. And if so, are we more merciful than God? At the back of this objection lies a mental picture of heaven and hell coexisting in a unilinear time, as the histories of England and America coexist, so that at each moment the blessed could say, the miseries of hell are now going on. But I notice that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea not of duration but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story. That the lost soul is eternally fixed in its diabolical attitude we cannot doubt, but whether this eternal fixity implies endless duration, or duration at all, we cannot say. Dr. Edwin Bevan has some interesting speculations on this point, see Symbolism and Belief, page 101. We know much more about heaven than hell, for heaven is the home of humanity, and therefore contains all that is implied in a glorified human life but hell was not made for men. It is in no sense parallel to heaven. It is the darkness outside, the outer rim where being fades away into non-entity. Finally, it is objected that the ultimate loss of a single soul means the defeat of omnipotence, and so it does. In creating beings with free will, omnipotence from the outset submits to the possibility of such defeat. What you call defeat, I call miracle, for to make things which are not itself and thus to become, in a sense, capable of being resisted by its own handiwork, is the most astonishing and unimaginable of all the feats we attribute to the deity. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. I do not mean that the ghosts may not wish to come out of hell, in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy, but they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded, and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and, at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so, on Calvary. To forgive them? they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is what he does. One caution, and I have done. In order to rouse modern minds to an understanding of the issues, I ventured to introduce in this chapter a picture of the sort of bad man whom we most easily perceive to be truly bad. But when the picture has done that work, the sooner it is forgotten, the better. In all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation not of our enemies nor our friends, since both these disturb the reason, but of ourselves. This chapter is not about your wife or son, nor about Nero or Judas Iscariot. It is about you and me.